we were being thinking yesterday about this verse that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. And that truth is mentioned, this is, I'm quoting from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. Like I said, when Samson pushed the pillars down, the whole building collapsed. So the church does not support the specific truth mentioned here. It's going to collapse. It's not going to accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. And that truth is the great mystery of godliness mentioned in the next verse. That Christ came in the flesh and was pure in his spirit. And when you link that, and it's called a great mystery, a secret that can be understood only by revelation. And some of these things may be new to you. There are only two great mysteries mentioned in the New Testament. You never find the word mystery in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant it was understanding, study. In the New Covenant it is revelation. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't understand that I was the Son of God by study, by comparing this verse with that verse or studying the Hebrew. It was by revelation from heaven. And that's the most important thing I find uh, Christians need to recognize. What we not only need Christ to be our justification, our righteousness, we also need Christ to be our wisdom. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, that Christ has been made to us righteousness and wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 And in the Reformation, you know, when truth was being recovered by people like Martin Luther, uh, there was a great emphasis on the fact that Christ is our righteousness. No matter how righteous we are, we can never make it into God's kingdom. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. The only way I can enter God's kingdom is if I come, no matter how holy I am, coming with the righteousness of Christ. That puts me on the same level as the filthiest sinner in the world who is also clothed with the righteousness of Christ, if he's repented. And then years later, as God recovered truth through the years, a couple of centuries later, there was the emphasis on Christ our holiness. Christ himself, you know, communicating to us the righteousness of God. We are first clothed with the righteousness of Christ and then that imputed righteousness becomes imparted. That means the righteousness of the law, the perfect righteousness of the law which the law requires is fulfilled inside us. It says in Romans 8, 4, by the Holy Spirit given to us. And that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. That's why in people under the old covenant could not experience that. So if you're satisfied with Christ being your righteousness, my sins are forgiven, I'm on my way to heaven. You're like a baby and you'll always be a baby throughout your life until you allow Christ to impart that righteousness to you through the Holy Spirit in daily life where your whole conduct changes the way you speak changes 
That's why James says, you know, if you can't control your tongue, your Christianity is worth nothing. And there are other passages like that. If you love money, you can't love God. Which most Christians don't take seriously because they only think of imputed righteousness. I find everywhere, most people just think of imputed righteousness. I'm, I'm righteous in Christ and it's almost as though it doesn't matter how I live. In spite of so many verses that warn us against it. Why do you think the book of Hebrews is perhaps the most unpopular book in the New Testament? It's not a popular book with most Christians. For me, it is one of the most wonderful books in the New Testament. There's a CD of mine called 70 Hours Through the Bible. And 70 hours through 66 books, I spent four hours on Hebrews. And that shows that's one of my favorite books. Because that's the book that reveals that Jesus was made like me, Hebrews 2.17. That Jesus was tempted like me, Hebrews 4.15. That he prayed with loud crying and tears, Hebrews 5.7 that he might not sin. And he's given a title in the book of Hebrews called Forerunner, not found anywhere else in the whole Bible, Hebrews 6.20. One who has gone away ahead of me. That's in Hebrews that I read, that I can run the race behind him. That the faith of Jesus is greater than the faith of all the Old Testament saints, that God's provided something better for me. So many wonderful things I find in the book of Hebrews. I'm not saying it's more inspired than other books, but I'm also... Uh, there's a reason, I think, why the author is not even mentioned in Hebrews. Nobody knows who wrote it. It's the Holy Spirit who wrote it. And it's a great book, and I would encourage you, those of you from whom Hebrews is not a popular book, it'll change your life if you really study it seriously and ask the Holy Spirit to give you revelation. Because more than any other book in the New Testament, it reveals that Christ came in the flesh. And if the church is to be the pillar and support of this truth, as it says in 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, I want to build a church that is the pillar and support of this truth. And that is what will bring sanctification in my life and bring fellowship with others also. There's no book in the Bible which speaks about the new and living way that Jesus inaugurated through the veil, through the rent veil, into the most holy place. The book of Hebrews. You don't find it anywhere else. So, <clears throat> Revelation, you know, the, it says in Ephesians 5, the second great mystery, one is that Christ came in the flesh and lived a pure life, which has always been the question, can man in his flesh live a pure life? Can we actually walk as Jesus walked? Is it possible? And the devil, as soon as you hear that, the devil says, impossible. Because, you know, most Christians have never thought of Jesus as a man. I see the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ as two legs on which I stand. They must be of equal length. And I want to ask you in your thinking, ask, answer yourself honestly, is the deity of Christ equal to your understanding of his humanity? I doubt whether it is true in the minds of most people. It was not true in my mind for 16 years of my Christian life after I was born again. I thought the great thing is, you must believe he is God, then your doctrine is right. John says, if you don't believe he came in the flesh, you've got the spirit of the Antichrist. Today we would say, if you don't believe he is God, you've got the spirit of the Antichrist. But read 1 John. He's not emphasizing the deity of Christ there. We believe he is God. That's why we worship him. 
Every truth in the Bible has got a practice, in the New Testament especially, has got a practical application. For example, that He is God, that's why we worship Him, that's why we pray to Christ, that's why we honor Him. What is the practical implication for you that Christ became a man? That He died for our sins, true, but in terms of today, how does it affect you today that Jesus Christ was 100% man? Do you know that he's called a man even today? Have you read 1 Timothy 2.5? That there's one mediator between God and man. We would like to say the God-man, Christ Jesus. That sounds very spiritual to call him God-man. But I have learned through the years to humble myself and not to use my reason, but to believe that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit and to use terms that the Bible uses. I never use the term sinful nature. Very common among Christians. I never use it because I never find it in Scripture. I humble my wisdom to God's wisdom. As I said, Christ becoming our wisdom has not been emphasized as much Christ becoming my wisdom means I need revelation from God to understand His truth. It means I humble myself. I lay my mind down. The Bible says in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, not with your mind, with your heart, and don't lean upon your own understanding. Do you know what is the greatest enemy to faith? our understanding. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord, that's faith, with all your heart. And the opposite, don't lean on your own understanding. The more you lean on your own understanding, the less faith you have. That's why you can't receive many things from God. You go, on, you go by reason. What you need is revelation. I remember in our church once, we have a baptism tank in our church and there was a brother who was baptizing somebody. He was a tall brother. The one who was being baptized. And he went in and his head didn't go in fully. I said, no, you've got to dip him again. This is the most important part that has to go under water. <laughs> All our trouble comes from this upper part of our head. Put him in again, I said. <laughs> and they did it again. Of course, it's only symbolic, but baptism is symbolic. It's a picture of burial. And this is the last part that we're willing to be buried underwater. We think so much of ourselves, not just our righteousness. I think most of us Christians, perhaps all of us, are glad to acknowledge our righteousness is as filthy rags. I want to ask you, are you willing equally to acknowledge your cleverness is stupidity before God? If you don't believe it, I showed you in scripture. Be like the Bereans, question me and everything. If I can't show it in scripture, don't believe it. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 20, God has made, the last part, the wisdom of the world foolish. God has made the wisdom of the world foolish. The greatest 
clever people in the world, the wisdom of the world is foolishness. And further in chapter 3, uh, sorry, chapter 2, it says about, you know, the natural man, verse 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The normal human being cannot accept the things of the Holy Spirit because they are foolishness to him. Do you know that the things of the Holy Spirit are foolishness to our natural cleverness? So if you study the Bible with your human cleverness, you can be absolutely sure you're going to go wrong. I believe that's the big mistake of Bible schools. And I am not going to want to insult any Bible school, but I'm deeply thankful that I never went to a Bible school. I would have missed out so much. The men who have, the greatest men of God who have blessed me in my life have all been people who have never been to a Bible school. The natural man, there's so much of the exaltation of the human cleverness in Bible schools. What is needed is revelation. In the Old Testament, the word was meditation. Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Why? Because that's the only thing you could do. You didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. So you had to meditate, meditate. And there were the great scribes and scholars who meditated and expounded the scripture. Now when I listen to a lot of preaching today, and I've heard so many preachers in the last 54 years that I've been a believer, and I find that what comes out of the pulpit, what comes on internet messages and all is human cleverness. Three nice points. They've studied how to prepare sermons, how to communicate, how to stir people's emotions, and how to convince people. They've studied logic. You know what I call it? Garbage. Trash. What we need is a revelation of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because you're Cleverness did not reveal to you. There are cleverer people than you in Israel, Simon. They think I'm Beelzebul, prince of devils, but you've seen that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what Jesus said. Think of that. People who studied and studied and studied and studied the scriptures, from Genesis to Malachi, it speaks about Jesus. Have you read that passage when Jesus was walking to Emmaus with the two disciples? And it's, it's a three-hour journey. It says about seven miles they had to walk. And three hours, we read in Luke 24, he took the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, and showed how every book showed Jesus as the Messiah. Right from the seed of the woman, Passover lamb, serpent lifted up in the wilderness, Isaiah 53 and all the way to the Son of Righteousness in Malachi. It was all about Jesus. And the people who studied it in the synagogues, they couldn't see that. They thought he was beautiful. I remember years ago witnessing a Jewish person in India and trying sitting with him and I was showing him. I said, what do you think Isaiah 53 speaks about? He said, it speaks about the nation of Israel. Suffering, 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 ill treated by others. I was amazed. 
was so clear to me, was so, he was so kind to me. Then I realized that some things that I can see so clearly in scripture, another person just doesn't see. Like I said yesterday, even though I said it, many of you heard it. How many of you really believe James 1.26 that if you cannot control your tongue, your entire Christianity is worth zero? Let me tell you the truth. 90% of believers don't believe it. See, if I can't control my tongue, I just confess it and ask Jesus to forgive me. And they live like that for the next 50 years, unable to control their tongue because the blood of Jesus is there. Is that verse in scripture or not? Do you think your human understanding is going to be more right than scripture in the day you stand before the Lord? This is why we cannot build a church. <clears throat> we want to build a church. <clears throat> and I said yesterday that God's plan is not a bunch of holy individuals running around the world as individual witnesses for Christ. He didn't say, I came to make people holy. He said, I came to build the church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. <clears throat> he, he said, them where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. What about if only one person gathers? There is no midst. Do you know that there is a power when two believers are agreed and united, which is not there when a person is alone, however holy he may be. There is an authority to bind the powers of darkness. I don't mean casting out a demon. Casting out a demon, any individual believer can do all by himself. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where Satan has entrenched himself in a situation, whether in a home or in a church, it requires a minimum of two people. And a minimum of two people, it says in Matthew 18, verse 19, who are agreed. If you're not familiar with that passage, let me show you that. It's... There are only two places that Jesus spoke about the church. The word church, you look up a concordance. It occurs only twice in the Gospels. One in Matthew 16, where he spoke about the worldwide church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And the other is the local church in Matthew 18. And verse <coughs> 17, where he spoke about the local church. The only two times Jesus ever spoke about the church. Where it says about telling it to the church where a person has to be disciplined. And in that, and it's very interesting, the only time Jesus ever spoke about the local church, he spoke about disciplining a brother who wouldn't submit to authority. Do you know that authority is so important in a local church? Many people don't recognize that. You can't build a home if you don't have a father and mother. We all understand that. You'll have an orphanage, not a home. And I'll tell you this, many churches are orphanages. They're not homes because nobody there submits to any authority. Everybody's alone to themselves. That's an orphanage. That's not a family. There's no father and mother. And this is a problem with many Christians. They don't like to submit to authority because they're not broken. They don't understand the value of brokenness. 
God could never use Moses. Even though he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And even though he was mighty and strong. With one blow he could kill an Egyptian. Have you ever thought of that? How strong Moses was? I don't know that there are many people who can with one blow kill a man. I mean they may knock him down. But Moses killed a man. One blow and the guy was dead. And it says in Acts 7 that Moses thought that seeing that all the Israelites would recognize that God was going to use him to deliver them. How? By killing the Egyptians one by one with his hands. How long would that take? God said, that's not my way, Moses. And he took him to the wilderness and kept him living with his father-in-law for 40 years and that's enough to humble anybody. I and mean, even one year with a father-in-law is enough. 40 years and not only to live with your father-in-law but to work for him. Boy. The great prince of Egypt was humbled. That was another university. God's universities are not for the head, for the heart. And God did such a work in Moses that finally at the end of, end of 40 years, he says, Lord, I'm not the man. This man who at the age of 40 thought, I am the man. He said, I'm not the man. I work with about 70 fellow elders in India. And we have frequent elders meetings for them. And the thing I keep on telling them, and I never get tired of telling them, is the greatest qualification for an elder is that he has no desire to be an elder and he feels he's totally unfit to be an elder. I stand before God and I say that. I have no desire for leadership. I feel I'm totally unfit myself. If you feel like that, not in artificial humility, there's a lot of that. You know, well, I'm not worthy, but if you insist that I should be, I'll take that place. I don't mean that type of trash. I mean where you're deeply convinced in your mind that you're not the man. Moses was not being artificially humble. He said, I'm not the man. Moses said, God said, you are. He says, no, I'm not. God, you're making a mistake. To the point it says God became angry with him. He said, I can't speak and all that type of stuff. The man was mighty in words. He says in Acts 7, he was mighty in words. He was a great, eloquent man at the age of 40. And at the age of 80, he says, God, I can't speak. Do you know the most important qualification to minister God's word? To minister God's word? Is to say, Lord, I can't really. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to communicate your word. And even if you've been doing it for 30, 40 years, to say, Lord, I don't know. I tell you before God, you may not know it, but I stand in the pulpit always feeling, I don't know what to say. And I don't know how to say it because I'm dealing with eternal things. I'm not just like a professor of chemistry or biology giving a lecture. A person who's taught chemistry or biology for 40 years can easily stand up and, yeah, I can speak. I've taught this subject for so many years. And a lot of Christian preachers preach like that. I say, God, save me from ever, ever, ever being like that. Help me to recognize that this is not like 
human ministries, like a lecturer in a college. The pictures God's given me is that I'm like a heart surgeon when I stand in a pulpit. I'm dealing with something far more important than heart surgery. When I think of a heart surgeon, I mean, I've been preaching for nearly 50 years. And God gifted me with the ability to prophesy when I was 23 years old, when I sought God for the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think of a heart surgeon who's dealing with cutting off a person's heart, dealing with a blockage or something serious there. Even if he's had 50 years experience, a good heart surgeon will go with tremendous care to see that his hands have been scrubbed. They have a minimum amount of time that they have to scrub their hands in the hospitals. They've got to make sure that every glove is sterilized and every tool he uses is perfectly sterilized. If one drops on the floor, he won't pick it up. I mean, we pick up a spoon or a fork that's fallen on the ground, right, and still use it, but not a surgeon. He says, sorry. What a standard of purity. I tell you, they put to shame most preachers who stand in the pulpit, who can come into the pulpit so casually, with things not set right in their life between them and their wife, or between them and some other brother, or certain areas in their life where they are aware they are not being sterilized. And that's what God showed me. You're like a heart surgeon, and no matter how many years you've been preaching, you're dealing with people's eternal destinies. I mean, that heart surgeon, the maximum he can do is kill that man by carelessness. But the man may be a believer, he can go to heaven. But a preacher who stands in the pulpit is dealing with eternal realities. People's eternal destiny. And if he is impure, then the words flowing through an impure channel can pollute more than germs from a surgeon's hand can bring harm to a person. <clears throat> this is how I feel every time I speak and I say, Lord, please uh, save me from ever taking that lightly. When it says here in Matthew 18, 19, two of you agree on earth and the word, the word there is the Greek word symphony or from which we get the English word symphony of music. Isn't it so wonderful when you see two or three instruments playing so perfect symphony, like these great orchestras, so many violins and other instruments. And it's so beautiful to hear that sound. People spend so much money just to go and listen to that. And that is the type of sound God wants to hear from a church. When you build a church, that's the sound God wants to hear, like an orchestra and perfect symphony, whether it's two or 200. And if there's one player there in that orchestra who's an amateur, who doesn't know how to play, an orchestra choir director is not interested in getting a large number of people in his orchestra, no. He's interested in gathering people 
who know how to play their instruments. And if it's only five, he'd say, I'd rather have only five people than having a hundred people where ninety-five of them don't know how to play the instrument. What's the use? They'll corrupt the whole thing. Orchestra, choir directors know that. Christian leaders don't know that. They think if I can build a mega church with huge numbers of people, that will impress God. He doesn't. He's looking for those who've got symphony. If it's two, that's enough. Two, completely in agreement in spirit. They can ask their father for anything. Do you know the reason why so many of our prayers go never answered from heaven? Christians have become so used to prayers not being answered that uh, they say, well, that's a normal thing. Just like Christians accept defeat in their life as a normal thing. Well, most, most believers are defeated, and so I suppose I'm okay. Well, most people around me, their prayers are never answered. They just accept it as normal. And that's how it is. But that's not meant to be like that. It was an, an abnormal thing for prayers not to be answered. When Jesus said, Jesus, his prayers were always answered. He said, Father, I know that you always hear me. There was never a question of the Father not answering Christ. Why is it we have got so used to accepting unanswered prayer as normal? We accept defeat as normal. We accept a husband and wife quarreling now and then as normal. You see, it's only now and then. Now and then? Is that God's perfect will for you? For your husband to come wife? I remember my... I started out my married life thoroughly defeated. I knew nothing about victory over sin. I used to get angry and everything else. But I saw a life described in the New Testament, which was way above what I was experiencing, way above almost everybody I knew was experiencing. But I saw in scripture there was a life of victory that was possible where I would never once raise my voice at my wife or be angry ever 365 days of the year and 366 days in the leap year. I said I want that life. And if it takes me 10 years, 20, 30 years to get there, I'm going to get there. And I was determined. It was like Jacob who said, Lord, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the Lord sometimes says like he said to Jacob, let me go. I haven't blessed you yet, but let me go. Have you read that in Genesis 32? He hadn't blessed him. But he said, let me go. And he will say to you, let me go. And you say, all right, Lord, see you later. Well, that's how you miss the blessing. But not Jacob. He says, I'm not going to let you go. That's exactly what God wanted to hear. He was testing him. And that's why he's testing you. And he wants to hear those words from you. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then he blessed you. And he changed his name to Israel. And he broke his hip. Yeah. If you ask God to bless you, he's going to break you as well. He's going to break you. Ruin your reputation. And change you from a weakling from a Jacob who's a grabber and a deceiver to an Israel who's a prince of God who has power with God in man. But you've got to have that attitude. I will not let you go except you bless me. And I said, Lord, I want that. I want power in my life. I don't want ever in my life to get up 
and speak in a boring way. I don't want to preach interesting sermons 99% of the time, but 100% of the time. Why not? Was Jesus ever boring? I don't believe that. And I have no right to stand up and represent Jesus Christ if I'm not seeking with all my heart to be the best possible preacher that Christ can have myself. I don't compare myself with others. I never do that. It's none of my business. I want to be the best that I can be. Not better than others. I have no interest in that. But all that God can accomplish through me. I say, Lord, I want to do that. I want to accomplish this. I've already won a life. I'm asking you whether you have that same passion. You know, like the businessman. I see a lot of businessmen in Bangalore who have such a passion to expand their business, to start a little some small store. Think, think of these stores like Walmart and all. It started as a little store and expanded all over the world. It's what a passion they have to make money. And I know that there are only two masters, God and money. And I said, Lord, in the final day, let it never be true that some businessman on earth served his God, Mammon, more wholeheartedly than I served the true God. Let it never be true. I want it such that no businessman on earth, not Walmart or any other mart, is going to put me to shame by serving their God, Mammon, more wholeheartedly than I serve the true and living God. What about you, my brother, sister? Can you say you're serving God, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for you, more passionately, more devotedly, more wholeheartedly than any businessman on earth serves money? We should hang our head in shame. The tragedy is so many Christians, born-again Christians, are more interested in comfort and pleasure and money than they are in serving Christ. And they wonder why they don't come to a better life. You'll never come to a better life, not in a hundred years. The Lord says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I often use this example, supposing you were walking in the grass one day at night and you dropped a, a five-cent coin in the grass. Okay, five cents. You look around. How long, how long will you spend searching for that five cents in the grass in the dark? One hour? Anybody so poor? I think even a tramp wouldn't search for more than a couple of minutes. Five cents. But if you accidentally misplaced a wad of $100,000 somewhere when you were moving around, how long would you search for that? You'd take leave from work that day. I misplaced it somewhere. I've got to find it. I don't know where I was carrying around with me a wad of $100,000 bills. And I asked you, how do you seek for God? Like a five cent coin, I seek him, I come once in a while for a conference, and I say, oh God, I want to see you. Didn't get all that I wanted, didn't get filled with the Holy Spirit, never mind, it's not the most important thing in life. I, when I get, when it's convenient, I will seek him a little more. Maybe once, 
Another day when I am passing by that grassy field, I look again to see if my five cent coin is there. If I don't find it, it doesn't matter. I tell you honestly, that's the way most people seek for God. Even say people who say they are born again. No wonder they don't find Him. No wonder their life is not useful for Him. No wonder they don't accomplish more in their life. No wonder they never, never build a local church that pleases God. They say people are not interested. Or is it because you're not wholehearted? I remember when we started, I said, Lord, if there's anybody in this area where I'm living in Bangalore who's seeking a godly life, I have three requests. One, you bring him in touch with us. Bring him right to our church, miraculously. Or bring me in touch with him. Maybe I'll meet him in a store or an airport or a bank or somewhere. And if you don't do both of these, as a man seeking for a godly life here, tell us what's wrong with us. And we'll set it right. And I'll tell you, most of the time it was number three. Whether the Lord was telling us what was wrong with us. And we set it right. And little by little, one by one, God brought us in touch with people who were seeking a godly life. First of all, like it says in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. First of all, in our own locality. And gradually, through many years, God built a local church. And then he brought us in touch with others in other parts around India, and then in other parts of the world. But if you don't have that passion to gather together people, the Lord wants it so much. Not numbers, but two and three and four who are agreed. It starts in a home, because that's the atmosphere of heaven. I was speaking about the importance of revelation and all these things. It's a great mystery, it says in Ephesians 5. The church is a great mystery. I, I quoted that yesterday, Ephesians 5. This is a great mystery that Christ and the church are one flesh. The Old Testament use of one flesh is the physical union between a man and his wife. And in Ephesians 5.31 it says that two shall become one flesh. Paul, are you speaking about a man and woman? He says, no. I'm not speaking about a husband and wife. I'm quoting from Genesis 2. But when God said those words in Genesis 2, it was prophetically speaking about Ephesians 5.32, a great mystery, Christ and the church. Have you seen it? The head and the body. And it's not one member. It's many people functioning together. Each willing to yield to the other. I have used this example about muscles. You know, when you move your elbow, there's no sound how effortless it is how we move our fingers, how effortless it is, no sound, no noise. We've come to accept it as normal. But do you know what happens whenever you move your fingers? There are muscles here. You can't do anything on this. You can't do anything in this body. I'm not a doctor, but I think I know a little bit. My wife's a doctor, so if I'm wrong, she always corrects me. There are muscles that pull and yield. So when I'm bending my elbow, there's a muscle here that's pulling. 
and there is a muscle on the other side that is yielding. And when I straighten it, the other muscle pulls and this muscle yields. But it's also effortless and quick that we don't think about it. You know, this is how the body of Christ is supposed to be. There's no person who thinks, hey, I'm the one who's always going to pull. And you're the other one who's always going to yield. Then my hand will be like this all the time. <laughs> Thank God there are no self-centered, conceited muscles like that in the body, like some elders who think, I'm the one who's always giving orders here. There are times when you have to yield. Even a husband and wife, Christ is the head of the church. Husband can say, I'm the head. But even the husband is going to yield to the wife sometimes. Sure. She, she can be right sometimes. And you can be wrong. A good wife is like an Eve, a helper. Who may at times tell her husband, darling, you're wrong. He must be willing to yield. In the same way in a church. I must be willing to work with others, even though I'm an elder, who can tell me, Brother Zach, I don't think you're right there. Think about it. This is this functioning of the body. Christ and the church, one flesh. Like husband and wife. This is a great mystery. Revelation. That's the great need. Christ is my wisdom. You know, Ephesians is a great book. It's probably the most spiritual among all the letters that Paul wrote. I would still place it next to Hebrews. But Ephesians in chapter 1, you know, Paul says here, I'm praying for you. I make mention of you in my prayers, Ephesians 1.16. And he says, this is what I'm praying for you, folks. I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.17, remember, Paul is a godly, spiritual man. And he never prays for the Ephesians that they will be rich and they'll be healthy and you all fellows will all be healed from all your sicknesses. I'm sure the Ephesian church was just like any other church. There were sick people there. There were poor people there. But he wasn't interested in helping all the poor people to become rich and all the sick people to be healthy. He says he knew that it was all temporary. He knew that if they sought the kingdom of God, God would give them enough money and enough health to live for him. So he didn't worry about all that. He knew the principle that if a person sought God's kingdom and his righteousness, the other things would be added to them according to what God saw was necessary for them. Enough health and enough wealth. And it's better that God determines that than we determine it. So he, his prayers were all spiritual. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of God's glory, will give you wisdom. The spirit of wisdom. Do you know that some of the greatest needs we have? And of revelation. There again, this new covenant word. Not meditation, but revelation. Any amount of meditation with your human cleverness can never be a substitute for revelation of the Holy Spirit. Revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, not in the knowledge of the Bible. In the Old Testament, they could not have a knowledge of God. They had a knowledge of the Bible. But now the Holy Spirit gives us a revelation in the knowledge of Him. And He prays that not your mind will understand, but your eyes of your heart will be enlightened. 
You don't find such verses in the Old Testament. This is why I say most Christians study the Bible exactly like a scribe in Jesus' time. Study, compare the original languages, meditate, and compare scripture with scripture, use a concordance, study, study, study. It's all the mind. And if a preacher is like that, he's going to give other people, also produce other people like that who spend their time studying. Now, I'm not against study. I've studied the scriptures. I've got a good mind. God's given me that. But boy, when I come to scripture, I realize what Jesus said in Matthew 11:25. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden all these things from the clever and the intelligent. Unfortunately, I happen to be clever. So, it's hidden from me. If you're a dumb person, you've got an advantage over me. <laughs> He's hidden these things from the clever, but it says it's, and then he says in Matthew 1, 25, but Father, you've given revelation. He used that word too. You've given revelation to the babes. That means I have to come like a baby. And the one thing Jesus said about a babe is humility. Do you know that the Bible is understood not by clever people, but by humble people? Your cleverness gives you no advantage. Your knowledge of Greek and Hebrew and commentaries and concordances gives you no advantage when it comes to knowing God. It may give you the advantage of preaching and impressing a whole lot of stupid believers who don't understand revelation. And you can impress them. There are a lot of preachers who impress people with their knowledge of scripture and they're comparing scripture with scripture. And they can't build the body of Christ. Because that comes by revelation. And that the number one requirement is humility. And if you're a humble brother, you produce other humble brothers. If you're a clever person, you produce a lot of clever scholars in your church. And you'll be a bunch of scribes who think you're very spiritual. It's not a church. I'm praying that you'll have revelation. The eyes of your heart will be enlightened. Paul was a great scholar. I believe he was such a brilliant man that if he were living today, he could have gone into any profession. If he had gone into business, he'd have done wonderfully in business. If he was a software engineer, he would have talked to anybody. He would have invented so many things. He had such a brilliant mind. But he laid it at the foot of the cross and said, God, give me revelation. It says, it pleased God to reveal his son in me, Paul says. He got revelation like Peter got. Dear brothers and sisters, that's what you need revelation on the real Jesus who was a man. You already know him as God. That's great. When Jesus was on earth, people already knew he was a man. That was pretty clear. What they didn't have revelation on was that he was God. Today it's the other way around. Christians know he's God, but they don't see him as a hundred percent man whom we can follow exactly. And if he could overcome sin, he says you can overcome too. That's the great truth that you see in Peter walking on the water. The law of sin is like the law of gravity, pulls you down all the time. Peter, Jesus overcoming the law of gravity and walking on the water is not a great miracle. 
But when he said to Peter, you can also do it. That's the message that comes to us. Come out and step on the water. You can overcome sin like I did. A lot of people sit in the boat and say, no, 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 I don't want to try it. Peter stepped out. And God needs people who will say, Lord, I believe if you can do it, I can do it. Because you were not only God, you were a man just like me. I believe you can do it. And then you gather other people also who have the same faith. What you have is a church. Not a bunch of people who understand all your ten doctrines in your statement of faith. But people who may not be able to explain all the statements. I'll tell you, when I go down to the villages in India, it's no use going with all these doctrinal statements of faith because some of them can't even read or write. They're illiterate. How do you explain doctrinal statements of faith and get a signature there? They can't even sign. But they can get revelation. You don't need to be educated to get revelation. And you know, when I see a lot of Christianity among educated Western people, and I see that Christianity among the poor villagers in India, and I, I have the advantage of comparing the two. And I say, if something works only in Western educated Christians, that can't be the gospel. If it is the gospel, it must work exactly the same way in those poor, illiterate villagers in India. And about 30% of people in India are illiterate, who cannot read or write. But they can get revelation. You don't need education for revelation. You don't need education to be humble. And if it is hidden from the clever and intelligent and revealed to babes, all I need to do is get people to be like babes. And they will understand it. But you say, how do they understand without the Bible? Do you know that for 1400 years Christians didn't have a Bible? How do they understand it? Did they start building the church only after printing was invented in the 1500s or 1400s? No. They built better churches before then with all the hundreds of commentaries and I've got a little book in, in my home called the New Testament in 26 translations. Every one of the translations say if you don't take up the cross you can't follow Jesus. It's the same thing. What does it matter whether you read it in one translation or 26? If you want to follow Jesus you've got to take up the cross. If you want to understand the Bible you need revelation. Every one of them says the same thing. Brother you need only one translation. In India, almost every language, almost every language has only one translation. You can't stand up for King James Version in India. I remember a man wrote to me once, email, Brother Zach, burn all the Bibles except the King James Version. I said, I'll have to burn all the Bibles in India. Because none of them are translated from the King James Version manuscripts. Not even one. What do you do? You see how blind you can be if you're fanatic for things that you never live in the third world and so you don't know how things are there. We live in a little cocoon of our Western Christianity and think this is everything there is. Brother, you've got to come and spend six months in some villages in India. It will revolutionize your whole understanding of Christianity. It's revelation that we need. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. And like I said, the wisdom of God, it says, is his foolishness to men. Nobody can understand a spiritual man, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 15, except another spiritual man. 
A clever man won't be able to understand a spiritual man. And so, because the wisdom of God is foolishness to men, when God does a work through a man of God, they think it's a cult. They think he's being exclusive. Oh, you're not being large-hearted. Why can't you accept all the Christians? I say, well, truth is pretty narrow-minded. And uh, I say, two plus two is four, and somebody says, come on, be a little more broad-minded. Get the other, accept the other fellow who says it's 3.9. And somebody else who says it's 4.1, I say, I'm sorry. You can call me exclusive, you can call me whatever you like, but I stand for the truth that two plus two is four. Can't you compromise it just a little bit? 4.01 perhaps? Sorry. 4. But they don't realize that the scripture also is pretty straight. The narrow way is very, very narrow. I see, for example, I'm talking about building the church. In India, we have sometimes rich American preachers who claim to be healers. Hardly anybody has generally healed in those big conferences, uh, I mean meetings. But one advantage of coming to places like India is you can get a hundred thousand people in a meeting pretty easily. Particularly if you preach healing. I don't have any healing gift, but I've preached in meetings with thirty thousand people with no mention about healing. I've not been interested in that. I want to go and gather a small crowd of four or five people and build a church. That's my passion. Because I know that's the thing that will remain. But a lot of preachers come to India because they get 100,000 people. Some, do you know that in Bangalore once they had a crowd of one million people in one single meeting? One of these healers came. So, in the early days, they would say um, all the evangelical pastors in India have got to be together. And they would invite me in those days. They've stopped inviting me now. But in the olden days they did. And I'd say, I'm sorry, I will not come and sit with you on the platform. I, I want non-Christians to be converted. I want people to come to Christ. I want people to be born again. But I will not support this so-called joint effort for one reason. And I use an illustration. I say, if I buy a DVD player from a Hindu storekeeper, for whatever I pay, say 3,000 rupees, and uh, I take it home and it doesn't work, I take it back to him the next day and say, your DVD player didn't work, he'd return my 3,000 rupees. A Hindu storekeeper. Okay, I'm sorry it didn't work. Here's your money. Now, I say, here is this big healing meeting with this preacher who's come from some western country who's talking about going to heal the sick. Come and heal, have your sick healed. And there's a non-Christian Hindu man, a rich businessman, who brings his paralyzed wife on a stretcher to the meeting to be healed. And, uh, you know, in all these healing meetings, they pass the bag around before the healing. This is the most strategic time to pass the bag around is before the healing because after the healing when hardly anybody's healed you'll get less money. So the wise thing is to pass the bag around before the prayer for healing. So this Hindu man who's always felt that the gods always want money from you 
puts 3,000 rupees into the offering bag. That's a lot of money. Because he wants his wife to be healed. And then, after all the collection is over, and the great preacher stands up there on the platform with all the supporting pastors in Bangalore sitting behind him, and he prays for the healing of the sick, and this paralyzed wife is not healed. So this Hindu man comes back to the organizers of the meeting the next day and say, hey, your product didn't work. I paid 3,000 rupees. My wife's not healed. Can you return the money? He says, sorry, we can't return any money. That's what I say. You guys who call yourself Christian pastors are not as righteous as that Hindu storekeeper who returns his money when the product doesn't work. I said, that's why I will not sit with you on the platform. We're not supposed to take money from non-Christians before preaching the gospel to them. And that's the only condition. I remember I was invited once to a, a big Youth for Christ con con meetings in one part city in India. And I said, I'll come there on one condition, that you don't take an offering when I preach. I'll permit you to put a box there at the exit. Anybody wants to put an offering, that's fine. But no taking an offering from unconverted people. The gospel is free. You don't have to take money from a person before you preach the gospel to him. And I said, you don't have to pay my fare. I will travel to that city at my own expense. You don't have to pay my hotel accommodation. I'll pay everything myself. I'll take care of my accommodation. I'll take care of my travel. I'll take care of everything. But I don't want you to take an offering in the meeting. And if you're going to do that, find another speaker. They wrote to me, thank you, brothers. I can find another speaker. <laughs> I said, fine. That's happened to me <laughs> more than once. See, <clears throat> people don't realize how, how you build the church. Our human cleverness. <clears throat> we need money. The thing that is most important in Christian work today was the thing the apostles never bothered about. Never. They were concerned about the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the most important requirement. Revelation. The wisdom of man is foolishness to God. God's, God says that's foolishness. We need wisdom, brothers and sisters. And so, People say, oh, Brother Zach is exclusive. He's a cult leader. He's exclusive. I find comfort in Acts 24. I'd like you to turn with me to this verse where the Apostle Paul said in Acts 24, 14. He was standing before King Felix and giving his testimony. And in Acts 24, verse 14, he said, this I admit to you, O King Felix, that according to the way which other people call a cult, that's how I serve God. So I said, Paul said, you can call me what you like, a sect or a cult or whatever it is. And I tell people, you can call me whatever you like, but I'll tell you how I serve God. Listen to me. This is how I serve God. I believe, verse 14, everything written in the Bible. I read it from cover to cover. I believe everything. I don't just say, this is the word of God, this is the only book God's 
given to man. I believe it, I read it, I study it, I prove by my life and by my knowledge of it that I believe it is God's word. If you don't study it, you don't believe it, it's God's word. Most Christians just nominally say the Bible is God's word. Some of them haven't even read through it once. You're a liar if you say God has given only one book to man and you don't bother about it. You study your academic books and other things more than the Bible. The Bible begins with the word, in the beginning God. First four words of the Bible, in the beginning God. That's how it must be in my life, in every situation, in my business, in the beginning God. In my daily life, in the beginning God. In my reading, in the beginning God. It must be like that. That's for a true Christian. And if you're a true Christian, that's how it will be. If it's not been like that till now, at least from today. I believe everything written in the Bible. You can call me a cut if you like. But I believe everything written in the Bible. In those days it was only the Law and the Prophets, Genesis to Malachi. Today it is Genesis to Revelation. And I have a hope in God. This is a cult person speaking. I believe everything in the Bible. I have hope in God. I have no hope in men, but I have a hope in God. And I know with absolute certainty that there will be two resurrections. I'm absolutely sure there will be two resurrections. Everybody will not be resurrected at the same time. There will be a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the wicked many years later. A resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the wicked. And because I believe this with all my heart, what do I do about it? I don't just preach about it. I don't just say I believe it. It's not just in my doctrinal statement, resurrection of the righteous, resurrection of the I do something about it every day. I want to be in the resurrection of the righteous. So what do I do? I don't just say, well, 30 years ago I said, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I'm going to be in the resurrection of the righteous. That is the type of folly that is being preached today. But look what Paul said. Because I want to be in the resurrection of just in view of this, verse 16. Paul, what do you do about it? He doesn't say, well, I accept the tribes on the Damascus road. No. In view of this, I do my best every day to always maintain a blameless conscience before God and men. This is the person who they call a cult, who preaches a blameless conscience before God and men every day because he wants to be in the resurrection of the righteous. Is your faith the same as Paul's? Or something you've got from third-rate evangelicalism today? Is your, just because you don't read the Bible, you don't see these things. I said, my calling is only to tell people, to show people how to read the Bible carefully, exactly as it's written. Don't believe Zach Conan, don't believe today's leaders. I have more faith in what Paul's written in Scripture about my eternal destiny than all the theologians that there are today in view of the fact that I want to be in the resurrection of the righteous, I do my very best to keep my conscience absolutely clear between God and men. With God and with men. And I use the illustration of getting a thorn in your foot. To keep your conscience clear is as simple as removing a thorn that gets into your foot. If a thorn gets into your foot when you're walking barefoot on the grass, 
Tell me, my dear brothers and sisters, how long will you wait before you pull it out? How long will you wait before you pull it out? Do you have to pray about it? Whether you should pull it out or not? Are you going to stand on prestige? Are you, are you going to say, well, I don't, want to, I don't want anybody to think I got a thorn in my foot. I'll act as if I didn't get it. You're going to be crazy. You will pull it out immediately. Even if I'm, we have a lot of mosquitoes in India, and if a mosquito sits in my hand, I feel it pretty soon biting me. I don't pray about whether I should knock it out or not. I may be doing the most important work. I stop it and knock that off before I continue my work. That's how we got to keep our conscience. You can get malaria through mosquitoes. I want to be careful. You can destroy your life with a bad conscience. What does this mean in practical terms? Do you want to be in the resurrection of the righteous? You see, these are the people who, whom others call a cult. I believe everything written in the Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation, the last verse. And I do my very best to keep my conscience absolutely clear. And I build a church where I urge people, I've done that for the last 37 years, keep your conscience clear. Confess your sin immediately. Did you hurt your wife with one rude word in an otherwise perfect sentence? Apologize immediately. Don't wait till the evening. Don't say the Bible says, don't let the sun set on your anger so I can wait till sunset. I know it says in Ephesians 4.26, don't let the sun set on your anger. But that is for those who are in the kindergarten. You know, those who, that's the outer limit you know, of getting rid of your anger. Those who are not humble enough to immediately apologize, God says, okay, you kindergarten babies, I'll give you an outer limit. At least by sunset, get rid of it. I don't want to wait till sunset. I want to take out the thorn immediately. I don't want to accumulate thorns throughout the day and kill them all out in the evening. I say, if I get ten thorns in a day, I pull them all out immediately. You do that when it comes to your thorns because you know enough that thorns can infect your body. Do you know that sin can affect your soul? You say, well, if I keep it for five minutes. Five minutes? What are you keeping a thorn in your foot for five minutes for? How many of you really believe that unconfessed sin... I want to ask you a straight question. How many of you really believe that unconfessed sin Sin that you need to acknowledge and confess to God, and if it is committed against a man, to man as well, can harm you more than an infection in your foot or hand. If you believed it, you would set it right immediately. I tell you, 99% of believers don't believe it. Like many other things in scripture. And they wonder, why can't I build a strong church? You'll never build it in a hundred years. You're afraid of people calling you exclusive or a cult. Paul was not. He said, you can call me whatever you like. I believe everything written in the Bible and I keep my conscience absolutely clear. And I teach that you will never be in the resurrection of the righteous if you don't keep your conscience clear before God and men. Let them call you Armenian or any other bad name they like to call you, but that's the truth. 
So, God is building a church in these days, which is not to impress people. You know, we want to build churches that will impress people. I hope people are attracted to our church. By what? I've had to ask myself, why, why should anybody join our church in Bangalore or the churches we have in India? What is the thing that draws them? Certainly not the type of buildings we have in our villages that need in houses and shacks and tin sheds in some places. It's fine. It's not the building. Some churches want to attract people with music. I never want a single person to come to our church because the music is good. We want to attract people to our church because they can meet with Jesus there. They meet with Jesus himself. You know, it's not enough to say, uh, he lives, he lives. People must see that he lives when they come to our church. That's the thing that must attract them. Christ. People often ask me, what is the mark of a new covenant church? I say, what is the mark of the old covenant tabernacle that God was there? You know, if you read the Exodus chapters 25 to 40, anybody can build a tabernacle today, exactly like the one Jesus, uh, like the one Moses built. The Philistines, the Amorites, the Moabites could have built a tabernacle exactly like the one that Moses built down to the last detail because it's all written in Exodus 25 to 40. But there was one thing they could not reproduce. You know what that was? The fire from heaven. The Shekinah glory on top of that tabernacle. That they could not reproduce. And you can follow another person who's building a New Testament church and follow the exact same pattern, sing the same songs, preach the same message, listen to all his messages on the internet and preach the same thing. But the one thing you will not be able to reproduce is the glory. The anointing. You can listen to the most anointed preacher and copy down his message and get up on Sunday and preach word for word. It will be the same, but the anointing won't be there. The fire is another thing. That's the mark of the new covenant church. A lot of people go to the internet to get messages to preach on Sunday morning. That's fine to learn something. I, people ask me this, Brother Zach, can we, you're so blessed by your messages, can we preach them? I say, sure, if you live them first. Don't preach them if you don't live them. Jesus did and then taught. You're welcome to preach all my messages if you live them first. And seek for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. By all means proclaim it. There's no copyright on my message. It came from heaven. It's not original with me. You can use it, but live it first. Otherwise, there's a verse in, there are two verses in the Bible which says God is against. I don't know if you know that. It says in uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, God is against the proud. He opposes the proud. There's another type of person he's against. Jeremiah 23, 30. A lot of people don't know this verse. I'm against those who steal other people's messages. Have you read that one? In Jeremiah 23, 30. I'm against those who steal messages from other prophets. 
I'm against the proud and I'm against those who steal messages from other prophets. But if you live the life, then you're not stealing it. If you seek for the anointing of the Holy Spirit, then it, even if you heard it from somebody else originates. So, when we want to build a church, it doesn't matter if people call us a cult or people call us anything. We need to demonstrate that Christ is in our midst. Let me show you the mark of the New Covenant Church, 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23. The whole church has assembled together. This is speaking of a New Testament church meeting. 1 Corinthians 14, 23. The whole church has assembled together. And everybody speaks in their tongues. They will say you're mad. And that's exactly what's happening today in many groups. People come and say, these guys are mad. What are they doing? But, if they prophesy, and prophesying is, verse 3, speaking to men for edification, exhortation, comfort, is not predicting the future. That was in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, prophecy is, verse 3, edification, exhortation, comfort. That's prophecy. You need to understand what prophecy is. It's not just raising your hand and speaking in an unnatural voice for one or two minutes. That's a counterfeit. It's speaking God's word. It could be one hour or five minutes. But it's edification, exhortation, comfort. Prophecy. And somebody comes and sits there and the secrets, verse 25, of his heart are disclosed. Not by publicly in a humiliating way. God doesn't do that. But as you hear the word, you begin to discover the secret sins in your heart. Your secret pride, your secret selfishness, your secret love of money, your secret so many things. The secrets of his heart are disclosed to him. And he declares, God is here. That is the mark of a New Testament church. Jesus is here. The glory is here. They don't go away from the meeting saying, Boy, wasn't that a good time of singing we had today? That's in a rock concert. And if that's all you got in your church, then that your church was not better than a rock concert. In the church we go away saying, saying, Boy, the Lord spoke to me today. I met with Jesus. That is the type of meeting that we should have in every single church meeting. You must have a passion and desire for it. I tell you honestly before God, that's my passion and desire. I say, Lord, I don't care what people think about me. They can call me a cult leader, exclusive, whatever it is. I don't care if they despise me, but they must go away after listening to me, feeling they have met with Jesus. They have heard Jesus speak to their heart. That's the only thing you should care for. What does it matter to what people say about you? That should be, we should long for such a church where every single time people come to the church meeting, they meet with Jesus before they go away. Whether the church meeting was half an hour or two hours or three hours, they met with Jesus. That's the important thing. Not they heard a profound sermon or they heard some comparison of this verse with the other verse or they found the root meaning of some Greek word or Hebrew. No, 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 no. That's to impress people with my knowledge. I heard of a man who went to listen to two preachers and he said the difference was this when I heard one man, when I heard this man, I felt what a great preacher. And I heard the other man and I felt what a great savior we have in Jesus. Which do you want? What a clever scholar. Oh, what a wonderful Jesus. Who can change me. What, what do people, what do you want people to go away once they listen, listen to you? 
Do they want to be taken up with your Savior or with your fantastic knowledge of Scripture? The Lord is very jealous. He's a jealous God. He will not give His glory to another. It says that in Isaiah 42. He will give us everything except His glory. He'll give us His power. He'll give us His wisdom. He'll give us resources. He'll give us everything. But He says, my glory I will never give to another. So if your aim in life is to have a ministry where people think, boy, what a wonderful man. What a great ministry he did. Brother, I'll tell you this. God won't back you. Stupid believers may admire you, but God won't back you. And if you want to build a church because you want to get some credit that I also built a new covenant church, God will not back you. You may get a name from a bunch of dumb, stupid believers. God won't back you. I'm more interested in what the devil thinks of my church than what a lot of people think of my church. You know that God boasted about Job to Satan. There were foolish preachers on earth like Eliphaz, Bildad, so far. They could not appreciate Job. But God in heaven could boast about Job to Satan. It's no use God trying to tell Bildad and Zophar, Job's a great man. You guys don't value him. People on earth cannot understand the truly godly man. And if you're concerned about the opinions of men, brother, I'll tell you right now, forget about serving God. Go and do business. The things of God are foolishness to the natural man. If I seek to please men, I cannot be a servant of Christ. God wants local churches functioning as a body in many parts of the world, but not churches that impress people, but churches that He can point out to Satan. You know, like I said yesterday, come and see. The Lord asked Satan in Job's time, Job chapter 1, where are you coming from? And Satan said, I've been roaming around the earth. God, I've been watching all these people who claim to be very religious and claim to love you. And I'll tell you, they're a bunch of hypocrites. God says, Satan, you're right. But, have you seen Job? I know there are not many, but I've got one witness on earth. There's nobody like him in the whole earth. In the midst of all those hypocrites you have met, Satan, look at Job. In the land of Uz, can the Lord say that about you to Satan? Yeah, Satan, I know there are bunches of hypocrites among Christians today. A lot of Christians are more interested in making money than glorifying me. A lot of Christians are only interested in their own honor than the honor of Jesus Christ, who sing nice songs to me. They're hypocrites. Satan, I know that. But, have you seen that man? In that town, that street. Have you seen that sister? Have you seen that home? I know there are a lot of Christian homes. They fight, they quarrel, they yell, they scream. They are all hypocrites. But have you seen that home? Number so and so in that street. Go and see there. I know a lot of churches are just seeking their own honor. But Satan, have you seen this church over here? 
Do you have a passion for that? That God could point to you and your home and your church to sing? I tell you before God is my witness, that is my passion. I'm not interested that God should point me out to you or my home to you or my church to you. But I'm certainly interested that he should point it out to Satan. Ephesians chapter 3. It says in Ephesians 3, <clears throat> speaks about this mystery. And it's revealed to very humble people. Paul says in Ephesians 3.8, I am the least of all the believers in the world. He wasn't acting humble. He really believed it. Lord, I am a nobody. I am a nobody, Lord. I am the least of all the saints in the world. Ephesians 3.8. But God gave me grace to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. There is no depth to it. It's endless riches of Christ to bring to light this mystery. This mystery of the church that has been hidden from God for so many ages. And now God is building the church. Listen to this verse 10. So that the many colored, many sided wisdom of God can be made known through the church to Satan. Have you seen that? God's pointing on the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And he later on tells us in chapter 6, verse 12, those are evil rulers and authorities. It's exactly like Job. Satan, come here. Have you seen that church? I want to ask you whether your church has got three people or 300 people. Can God point out your church to the rulers, authorities, and heavenly places and say, there you see my wisdom, not human cleverness but the manifold wisdom of God. That's the church I want to be a part of. That's the only church I want to build. If I were living in Noah's day, the only ship I would build would be Noah's ark. I wouldn't waste my time with anything else because I know what will last. I want to tell you, my dear brothers and sisters, he who has ears to hear, this is the only church that's going to remain when Christ comes. Built to the wisdom of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I want to pray as bow our heads. I also want to pray at this time as our heads are bowed. For anyone here who has a special need, we are spirit, soul, and body. There could be physical needs, there could be sicknesses, there could be problems in your life which affect your mind, which weigh you down. Our Father in Heaven knows your need. As the Father pities His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. He knows your need. When pain and sickness come to you, God knows how you feel. He loves you and He has power to heal. And as He cared for Jesus on earth, He will care for you because you are a child of God. Let's ask Him for our needs. Whatever it is, maybe things too private and personal that you cannot ask others.
my brothers and sisters, I want you to lift that burden to God and put it in His hands today. And say, Lord, your word says, be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication that your request be made known to God. We want to do that right now. Make your request known to God. Lord, this is my need. This is my need, Lord. Maybe it's a personal need. It's a spiritual need, perhaps. Maybe you've seen your own need spiritually this morning. Confess it. Confess your sin to God. If you've got... If you hurt somebody else, say, Lord, at the first opportunity, I'm going to ask forgiveness from that person. If you haven't forgiven somebody, make sure you forgive them right now in your seat. Say, Lord, I forgive them, this person and that person and the other one. I'm going to start life afresh. Thank you for overlooking my past years of ignorance. But I want to go your way, Lord. I want to live a godly life. I want to build a godly home. I don't care anymore what people say about me. I want to walk the narrow way of discipleship. And I want to build a church. A church where Christ is found. The love and the purity and the humility of Christ is found by anybody who enters in. Help me, Lord. I'm weak and I'm ignorant. But I want to be like a babe. And Lord, I come to you also with this physical need of mine, this emotional need, this sickness. In my life or in my home, I bring it to you. I believe you are part of heal. I believe if earthly fathers know how to give good things to their children, how much more you, my heavenly Father, will meet the need in my life and the need in my children. I believe it. I trust you. Help my unbelief. I bring my child to you, Lord. Like that father brought that demon-possessed child to you, saying, your disciples could not heal him. Lord, can you have mercy on us? And the Lord says, bring him to me. And you say, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe. Trust him. He loves you. He can care for you. He cares for you. He will provide your need. Heavenly Father, we lift up all these needs that are present, present in this room at this time. Before you, you are our Father in heaven. And we have a right to come to you in the name of Jesus. We trust you, Lord. Our Father and Daddy, we trust you. You care for us. Provide the need of everyone here, Lord. Spiritual, mental, emotional, physical, in their family. And help us all, Lord, in wherever we are, to be a part of a local church that glorifies your name. And if there is no such one, to build one. You can take the weakest among us and do a great work. Do it, Father. Many places in this land. In Jesus' name, Amen.